But now we come back to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 13. It's where we'll be today. Acts chapter 13. We'll be starting in verse 26 and reading through verse 41. Acts 13, 26 through 41. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 13, starting in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now with his witness to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has Fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to be to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you who are most just, most holy, most righteous, to you we come today, Lord, to receive the sweetness and the savory taste of the gospel. Lord, as we read the words of Paul here in the book of Acts, may we, Lord, be encouraged in the gospel. May we be strengthened in our faith. May we be challenged in our understanding that we might grow, Lord, in our understanding, that you might deepen us in our confidence in Christ Jesus, and Lord, that you might expose to us the areas in which we fall short, the ways in which we fail, and that even in that, Lord, we might be cleansed and freed by the blood of Christ Jesus. Bless me now as I speak, Lord. Guide my words, direct my thoughts. Help me today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. The, uh, one of the, the coolest stories, in my opinion, 
that, uh, that has ever been told is the story of the Lord of the Rings. This amazing story told by, by Tolkien and uh, thankfully adapted into movies for people like me who don't enjoy reading books. And one of the most amazing characters in the books and in the movies, that of Aragorn, this rider from the north, this ranger who introduces himself in the Fellowship of the Ring as this lone strider, this one coming out of nowhere, but this one who we come to find out is in fact the heir to the throne of Gondor. The story of Aragorn is a really cool uh, redemption story, really. It is a story of a of a kingdom that has been without its king for years, a kingdom that has been looking for, longing for its rightful ruler to come and to take his place. If you remember the story, the, uh, the, the throne had been left empty for years and years and years, and there had just been a, a steward, or really a line of stewards that were, uh, were stewarding the kingdom of Gondor until that day that, the, that Gondor, that the kingdom looked forward to, the day when the king would return and would take his rightful place on the throne. And as we see the story unfold, we see that one Aragorn come and take his place rightfully on the throne. The one who came and, and was the, the savior of his people, the one who would come and save Gondor from her enemies and would take his place on the throne. Really, really cool, cool story of this kingdom in need of a king, in need of its savior, and the one presented Aragorn, the one who would come, who was the rightful heir to the throne, the one who came and saved his people, Gondor, from the evil that was imposing upon them. The story of the king that was searched for, the king that was needed, the king that was missing. It's really that story in a nutshell that the Apostle Paul is here presenting in, in Antioch today. That he is here presenting to his audience, an audience, if you recall, that is primarily a Jewish audience, for he is indeed speaking to them in the synagogue. And he is speaking to this audience of, of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, those who maybe were not Jews by birth, but who had accepted the teachings of Judaism and, and wanted to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he now comes in this moment, in this sermon that he preaches to them and proclaims to them, delivers to them the message that their king has come, that the throne is no longer empty. Indeed, he comes preaching to them the gospel concerning the better David. If you recall from the story of Israel's history, there was none so revered as far as kings go than David. And it was from David's line that the promised coming king and Messiah would return and take his place. Paul's sermon here is a sermon in which he is doing nothing less than declaring to this Jewish audience that the king they were waiting for has come. Since it's been a few weeks since we were here last, I'll just give us a short recap as what we, we heard last week. So, so we see the apostle Paul and Barnabas here on their first missionary journey, having just been sent out, and they go out preaching the gospel. And he now comes to this place, this place known as Pisidia Antioch. And he comes to the synagogue and begins preaching the word of God. And he begins his sermon in the same way 
that is common among the apostles, the same way that Peter did at Pentecost, the same way that Stephen did before he was stoned. He begins by giving a brief survey of the history of the people of Israel, and he recalls God's grace and his faithfulness to his people. And he recalls to them as well the promises that God made to his people. He looks back over the the history of Israel and brings to their mind how God displayed his grace to them over and over again and also brings to bear, brings back to their memory the, the promises that God has made to his people. And he does all this for a reason, bringing up God's faithfulness and bringing up the promises that God made to his people. And he does this so that he can now step in and say, these promises have been fulfilled. Now Paul, after bringing up these promises, reminding them of their history, turns his attention directly to Jesus Christ and the gospel and delivers a beautiful gospel proclamation, particularly contextualized to his Jewish audience, which is important for us to understand. While we can look at the different sermons of Paul and we can see different nuances how he, he preaches the same gospel over and over and over again, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection and the new life found in him, the justification, forgiveness of sins found in him. But what you can also see is that there are some differences in the way Paul preaches to a Gentile audience versus the way he preaches to a Jewish audience versus the way he preaches to a Greek audience. Paul was a master at contextualizing the message of the gospel and presenting to the people the gospel in a way that was relatable, that was understandable, that was helpful to them. And so we see him doing that in a particular way here in Acts chapter 13 as he preaches to a Jewish audience. And I want us here at this time to consider and and look at how Paul preaches this sermon. Look at the different aspects of the gospel that he brings out, that he draws out, and that he presents to the people. Indeed, when we come to passages like this, it's, it's a difficult thing for me because I read this message of Paul and I think, man, what, what more could I say? What more could be added to this already sermon that Paul is preaching here that would somehow make it better? And I have no intention of making better the sermon of Paul. But what I do hope that we can do is that we can examine his sermon as he's preaching now to this Jewish audience and see what it is that he draws out, why he draws it out, and focus on the message of the gospel as presented by Paul here in Antioch. And we start, first and foremost, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In verses 27 through 31, this is the emphasis of Paul's message. The resurrection of Christ is mentioned over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts as the gospel is being preached. In fact, arguably, you will not find the gospel presented in the book of Acts. You will not see the apostles or the early evangelists preaching the gospel and leave out the resurrection. The resurrection, as it is today, is central to their understanding of the gospel. It takes a prominent place in their proclamation. Indeed, it is perhaps the very thing that sets Christianity apart from all else, the victory over death that is displayed in Christ Jesus. The resurrection of Christ serves as the the proof that he is the Messiah that was promised to the people. We have to make note as well of the providence of God 
and all of this message that Paul is now preaching. For indeed, what does he say in verse 27? He recalls the, that those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, did what? They fulfilled them by condemning him. This is a common theme as well in the preaching of the apostles. They don't shy away from, they don't hold back from proclaiming that what these men did in the crucifixion of Jesus, the murder of Jesus, was wicked. And it was evil. But just as much as it was wicked and it was evil and it was sin committed by evil men, it was used by God. It was instrumental in his purposes that as they were carrying out what they thought were their own purposes and their own will, they were also carrying out the will of God, even fulfilling the very prophecies that they had heard read over and over and over again in the Sabbath. All of this that these Jewish leaders, that these religious leaders did as they condemned Jesus and killed him, all of it, God was using and orchestrating to fulfill his purposes and his promises. The resurrection was central to their gospel. And what's also fascinating is that as we see the resurrection over and over and over again presented by the apostles, as they're delivering the gospel, as they're giving evidence for Jesus being the Messiah, not once in these accounts do we see this refuted. The resurrection of Jesus Christ presented over and over again is never refuted in the book of Acts. Why? Because it was true. Indeed, if the resurrection was false, would it not have been easy to refute? What would they have to do? Go get Jesus' body, bring it out. Here's his body. He's not been resurrected. He is dead. But they couldn't do that, could they? Was it because they didn't know where he was buried? Unlike what some people might say. There are some who claim that they just forgot where the tomb was and they went to a different tomb that was empty. No, they never forgot where Jesus was buried. All they would have to do in order to disprove the resurrection, these, these Jews and the Jewish leaders, was to bring his body out and it would be over. All of it would have been over. But they couldn't do that. Why? Because Christ's body was not in the grave. The gospel message is one rooted in history and in reality. That Christ died on the cross, was buried, and then was raised from the dead is not just some embellished story that adorns our tradition. It is the set moment in history upon which redemption and salvation are secured. Sometimes we, we forget this because we are so far away from the resurrection. In fact, sometimes we fail to understand why it is that important. But we need to recognize that our faith, our salvation, redemption is not built on some mythological story. It is not built on some idea of love. It is built on the reality, the historically true reality and moment in time when Christ was raised from the dead. Which is why Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then indeed we are above all most to be pitied. We're fools, for we have hitched our wagon to a lame horse. The gospel message is one that necessitates belief and understanding in the historical bodily resurrection of Christ. And therefore, for the apostles, it becomes central to their message, just as it should for us. The resurrection of Christ, the, the thing by which we look forward to our 
coming resurrection. Not only do we see the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ depicted in these verses, but then in verses 32 through 37, we see that Paul proclaims the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. What does he say in verse 32 and following? He says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Christ. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This portion of the sermon is perhaps the most important for his Jewish listeners to hear, yet oftentimes the most difficult for them to stomach. The news that the promises that God made to his people in Israel, and specifically here he's talking about the promises given to David, that they have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is he's going back to the Old Testament and he's preaching Christ from the Old Testament. The same thing Jesus does. He preaches Christ from the Old Testament as he's talking with his disciples after his resurrection. Specifically, when Paul directs their attention to David, his intention is to show them that the Davidic promise has been fulfilled in Christ. Indeed, he is the new and the better David. The one who would come from David's line, who would sit on the throne and would reign forever. Christ is he. Paul preached that these Old Testament examples, these types and shadows, served for us as a picture of Christ. They served to point us to the fulfillment of all of these promises, of all of these types, of all of these shadows in Christ Jesus. In fact, the story of David really begins to come to life when you understand this, as does all of the Old Testament. That when you understand it through the lens of Christ, you begin to see how his life and the events described in the Old Testament point us to Christ. They give us a picture of what Christ does, but in a full and complete way for us. Think about just for a moment the stories of of David's life alone. Perhaps the most famous one, the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath is one that for us serves as a picture, as a type of what Christ has done for us, his people. He stood and faced off against the enemy that was ours, against the enemy of sin and death, against Goliath, and defeated him on our behalf. He won the victory for us, for his people. David, as he defeats and pushes back the enemies of God's people, gives us a picture of the way in which Christ defeats his enemies and ours. The fact that David reigned as king over God's people serves for us as the picture, the type, the shadow of the way in which Christ reigns as our king. The story of David comes to life, as does all of the Old Testament, when you begin to see it and read it, as Paul rightly does, through the lens of Christ. That in Christ Jesus the Old Testament promises, the Old Covenant promises have been fulfilled. That the, the, the Messiah, the promised king that would come through the line of David to the people of Israel has come. That they don't need to wait any longer. They don't need to look any longer. Their Savior has come, their Messiah has come, and he was Jesus whom they killed, hung on the tree, buried in the grave, but yet the one that the Lord raised as evidence that this was 
his Messiah. In verse 35, he gives one of the most basic and clear and irrefutable arguments for Christ as the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. An argument that we've heard before. He says, therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. This is something that the Jews had historically applied to David. It was a psalm of David. But what is Paul doing now? He's taking this psalm of David, and what does he say next? He says, For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. He says this psalm that you are simply applying to David applies not to David, but to the only one who has not seen corruption. Jesus Christ, the one who died, was buried, yet rose from the dead. This could not be true of David. David's body is still in the ground. It is corrupted. If you were to open up the tomb of David, what would you see? You would see his decayed corpse and all that remains of it. Indeed, this was not a promise a a prophecy concerning David, but concerning the Messiah, concerning Christ. So we see as Paul preaches, he's telling this Jewish audience what they need to hear, that the promises that were granted to God's people in the old covenant have been fulfilled, and they've been fulfilled in Christ. He goes on in verse 38 to proclaim to them the forgiveness of sins. Verse 38 says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The fact that we as human beings are stained by sin, are corrupted by sin, is unavoidable. It's inescapable. You look around us, and and you can ask anyone in the world, whatever their religious perspective might be, whatever their persuasion is, it doesn't matter. You ask anyone in the world and say, are things messed up? Are people sinful? Do people screw up? The answer is gonna be Yes, every single time. It doesn't take any sort of study or theological understanding to see that as human beings, we are messed up, that we're stained, that we're broken. We're broken because of sin. The the idea of sin, even of having transgressed against a deity and having wrath kindled up against us is not a new or foreign concept that Paul is preaching here. It's not new or foreign, whether to Jews or anyone else. In fact, a quick survey of any pagan religion will give you plenty of examples of angry gods ready to smite the people. Look throughout Greek and Roman mythology. Look through other pagan religions and and deities and gods, and you'll see all kinds of examples of this, of people who have angered the gods or the god and have to find some way, some means by which they can appease the anger of this God, make this God happy with them so that they will not be destroyed. The difference lies in how sins might be forgiven. How human beings might atone for their transgressions. And all these other religions, there's ways to atone, there's ways to find forgiveness whether it be through self-mutilation, bodily harm, whether it be through sacrifices being performed, sometimes the sacrifice of animals. Historically, throughout throughout human history, even the sacrifice of people in an attempt to appease the gods. People have always been coming up with ways to try and appease God, to try and atone for their sins. 
The idea of atoning for sin, making amends in that sense, is not something that's new. In fact, I was somewhat surprised as I watched the, the Mandalorian show on Disney+. Plus. I think it's in season two, where the Mandalorian, he, he breaks the rules of his religion, right? And he takes off his helmet and people see his face. And, and he, he broke the rules. He transgressed. He sinned in essence. And what was the question that he asked the, the sort of head honcho of the Mandalorians of his sect? He said, what can I do to atone? What can I do to make right this sin that I have committed? That is the question that the world all around us has been asking for eons. How can I atone for my sin? And there have been all kinds of wrong answers. Answers that say, well, if you do these things, if you make these sacrifices, if you offer these things to God, if you do this to your body, you can be atoned for. Christianity stands apart from all other religions. And that in the gospel, what we hear and what we find out is that God himself acted to satisfy his own wrath and his own anger on behalf of sinful human beings. That is, we justly deserve his wrath. Why? Because we are sinners. Something we all know to be true. And when we survey and ask the question, if God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, how can we be forgiven of our sins? There seems to be no way. Whatever bulls we could sacrifice, goats we could offer, none of them could take away sin. That's what the author of Hebrews says. But Christianity, the gospel says that God provided a way to appease his wrath. In fact, he sent Jesus Christ to appease his own wrath on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the only means by which we could ever have our sins forgiven, God did that for us, to forgive us, to cleanse us of our sin. That is what the Apostle Paul is here saying. He is saying in verse 38 that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. To a people who were still relying on sacrifices, relying on works, relying on these various things in order to be forgiven of their sins, in order to have their sins washed away, but none of them could remove the stain of sin rightly and truly. Except the blood of one sacrifice, the blood of one lamb, Jesus Christ. In him is forgiveness of sins. But not only have our sins been forgiven, but our relationship with God has been restored. That's the next point that Paul gets to in verse 39. That is, we have justification by faith. In verse 39, he says, and by him, that is by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word freed here, while the ESV translates it free, is the same word used for justification all throughout the New Testament. That is, he says that by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be freed, could not be justified by the law of Moses. Jesus is saying, Paul is saying that in Christ Jesus, we have been justified before God. We have been made right. The relationship that was broken has been restored and we can now stand in his presence as righteous because of Christ's work on our behalf. This interaction as he is telling them how they can be freed, how they can be justified, it reminds me of the interaction that Jesus had 
with his Jewish audience in John 8, 31 through 38. In this interaction where Jesus says some of these words that we, that we so remember and, and call to our minds, where he was teaching them on truth, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, you recall, as he was speaking to these Jews. And the Jews were a bit taken aback by this. When Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Jews' reaction was, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're the sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. What is this you talk about freedom? What is this freedom that you speak of? Why would we need to be freed? We are not enslaved. Their misunderstanding was severe, wasn't it? Their misunderstanding was that he was speaking simply of a temporal, of an earthly enslavement, but Jesus was speaking of something much more that is a slavery to sin. In verse 34, Jesus answered them of of John chapter 8, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus was speaking to a group of Jews who were so blinded by their sin, as we all are apart from Christ, that they didn't even understand that they were enslaved to their sin. But he says, in him, in Christ Jesus, freedom is made available. And indeed, who the Son sets free is free in Indeed, Christ brings true freedom to the one who trusts in him. Freedom from sin and death, freedom that is found only in Christ, freedom to walk in newness of life, obedient to Christ. Freedom from all these things. This is what justification is for us. We see also something here that is known in in the Reformed world as the distinction between the law and the gospel or the law-gospel distinction. As he's writing here, the Apostle Paul, he says, everyone who believes in him is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. What is he doing here? He is setting these two things next to one another. The gospel of Jesus Christ, justification by faith, and the law. That is the the works done by human beings. And he is saying that salvation, justification is available only by faith, that by faith, by believing in him, we are freed, we are justified from all things, from all of our sin, from all unrighteousness, things from which we could not be justified by the law of Moses. This brings us to a right understanding of the law of Moses and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not to say that the law of Moses is bad or that it is worthless or that it is to be cast aside. No, it is to say that the law of Moses, the law, serves a purpose in God's economy of redemption. But the purpose is not to justify us. That we can never be justified by our obedience, by our doing right, by our doing what the law commands. For indeed, none of us can fulfill the law perfectly. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and what you find out is that the law is even more difficult to uphold than we first thought it was. The law will never bring justification because we can never uphold the law perfectly. But justification comes only by trusting in Christ, the one who obeyed the law perfectly like we never could, who lived a perfect, righteous life that we could never live. And at that time when he died on the cross for our sin and God's wrath was poured out upon him, not only were our sins forgiven, but Christ's righteousness was then credited 
to us. Just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. So all of those who trust in Christ, who believe in him, are freed. We are counted as righteous, something that could never come by works of the law, but only by faith in him. We just got back from our trip to Rome after spending 10, 11 days there for the purpose of pursuing a partnership, engaging with a church that is at work there in Rome. And a question that some have, indeed I've heard from some, is the question of why would we partner with churches in Rome and call it missions and call it evangelism? That is a valid question, right? After all, it's the very center of Roman Catholicism. Religion is there. The Bible is there. And yet it's a question that we respond to by saying that what the Roman Catholic Church teaches in regards to justification is not the true gospel. What Jesus says here, that we are justified, we are freed by belief, not by works of the law, but by faith alone. Indeed, the Council of Trent, Canon 9, this is what the Roman Catholic Church says with regards to justification. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. In other words, if anyone says that we are justified before God, declared righteous before God by our faith alone, and not by any works that we do in order to cooperate so that we might obtain the grace of God, let him be anathema, let him be cut off from God. The Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent heard, and to a degree, rightly understood the concept of justification by faith alone. And their response was, that cannot be. God's grace is not that free. That's too easy. That's too good to be true. That essentially was the Roman Catholic response. Indeed, the, the fear that was being addressed at the Council of Trent, is that if we, if we teach people that justification is by their faith alone, well, that means they will just go live however they want. They will go in and abuse and, and run all over the grace of God. So they said it can't be that easy. Justification before God cannot be as easy as trusting in Christ Jesus. But church family, that is exactly what the Bible says about justification, that it is that easy. And that the only way to be justified before God is by trusting in Christ alone. Not by any works of penance, not by any works of confession, not by connection to the sacraments. It is by Christ alone and faith in him alone that a person is justified. That's why Paul says in Romans 4, 5 through 8, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. You see, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, even as Paul here in Acts is laying it out for us this early, 
is not some secondary doctrine that is up for debate. It is central to the gospel. And so the reason we seek to partner with churches that are at work in Rome, the reason we, we say that Rome does not hold the true gospel and that they need to hear the true gospel, that justification, salvation comes only through Christ and trusting in him, not by any works that we do. We say this, we do these things not in order to pick a fight, not because we just want to argue over theology, not because we are just out to get people. Indeed, when that becomes the case for us, we must repent of our sin, of our desire to be right, of our desire to argue, of our desire to, to be this way. No, we do these things. We proclaim the gospel of justification by faith alone to our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ so that they might be freed from their sin, so that they might be saved, not so that we can pick a fight, not so that we can be right or wrong, but out of love we proclaim the gospel to all who need it. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, even this early in Acts, is central to the gospel according to Paul. And then finally, in verses 40 through 41, we see a warning to those who reject the message. Verse 40 and 41, Paul says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul concludes his sermon here by quoting from the prophet Habakkuk. He quotes Habakkuk, a word from the Lord in which God warns the people that because of their unbelief, because of their rejection of him, that they were about to face his judgment. That he was raising up the Chaldeans in order to use them to judge the people of God. That destruction to them was imminent. This is what Paul now gives to his Jewish listeners, saying, beware lest what is said by the prophet Habakkuk is true of you. Meaning that rejection of Christ is the same thing as rejection of God was in the day of Habakkuk. And that God's wrath, his judgment is going to be poured out on all who reject his Messiah. Rejection of Christ is rejection of God. And just as he judged the people of Israel, so he will judge you if you reject him. Paul has presented to these Jews in Pisidia, Antioch, the Messiah that they have been waiting for, their king after the line of David, and he warns them of the consequences of rejecting their king. The good news that Paul gives these people is really a simple news. Jesus is the one who was promised to you. He is the Messiah, the son of David, heir to the throne, the king whose kingdom will have no end. What Paul is saying is, behold your king. He is here. He has come. Do not reject him, but embrace him and the freedom and forgiveness of sins and salvation that is found in him. Jesus is the fulfillment of of all that the Old Covenant pointed to and foreshadowed. That is really essentially also the message of the book of Hebrews. If you were with us as we preached all the way through the book of Hebrews, you'll know that over and over and over again, the theme was Christ has fulfilled it. 
All that was promised in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, all of it is fulfilled in Christ. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 7, we read, and verse 13 as well, we read this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Paul's message to these Jews, that's just the, the author to the Hebrews message was, was that Christ has come and he has fulfilled all that you are waiting for, all that you are longing for. The promises of God are fulfilled in him. Do not miss out. Let go of the traditions. Let go of your reliance on the law. Let go of all these things and exchange them for Christ. For the gospel, that's where salvation is found. That's where forgiveness of sins is available. That's where you will be justified in him and in him alone. This is the gospel that we now take part in and proclaim. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the King, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of a broken people. Church family, my hope is that you would hear these words and that you would believe them. Not because I have said them to you, but because the Bible has given them to us. Because the Bible is the word of God and it is clear that this is the gospel. Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection that by faith in him, trusting in him alone, we have the forgiveness of our sins and righteousness granted to us by him. Let's pray.